Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. And we've got a really exciting guest today. Um, welcome Dr. Clint Haycock. Um, he has a podcast called Mindshift. He's studied theology and Bible studies in various academic settings and completed his PhD in 2011, with his dissertation being a rhetorical critical study of the book of Ezekiel. He's a former pastor of an evangelical church and served in full-time ministry. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Clint Haycock. Thank you very much. Just call me Clint. That's uh, that's fine. Excellent. The title we'll doesn't do. do me any good anymore. <laughs> it doesn't... <laughs> So it's not literally not worth the paper it's written on or printed on. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay. Excellent, Clint. Well, thanks for joining us today. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated. I've been really looking forward to this uh, interview since you you said you'd do it. So great. I've been listening to your podcast uh, for quite a long time now. Um, so first of all, maybe you could tell us a bit about your story. You've got a, a really interesting story because you had a podcast called the Preachers mm-hmm. Forum podcast. Yes, and then something happened. So tell us what happened. <laughs> well, I think looking at my journey, it was basically my last gasp of trying to reform the church from within. So I was going down the progressive Christian route, probably the last two or three years of my evangelical faith, what I was holding on to, and I had been exposed to more progressive authors like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, uh, Donald Miller, people like that, uh, Father Richard Rohr. So I was I was already deconstructing my fundamentalist background, which is what I was raised in. Right. So I was jettisoning a lot of those sort of, you know, what I thought were core doctrines. And so the Preacher's Forum, because I studied preaching, that was what my dissertation on Ezekiel was actually about. It was, yes, it was a rhetorical critical study of the book of Ezekiel with a view toward helping people to preach a different style. You know, so I was still trying to reform evangelicalism from within so that's what the preacher's forum was about. But I was deconstructing it sort of in front of a live audience. <laughs> so I changed the name of the podcast to the Mindship Podcast because it just did not fit where I was going. I had to change the name. So that was that was an interesting journey just to be able to do that in and of itself. That's a lot of work to change a podcast without losing your audience and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, that, that fascinates me, actually. You know, it's um, I think most podcasts you know sort of move a little bit they gradually develop and i know ours Mm. has we're very new really we've just been going a year now um but even in that time you know we can see how we kind of moved a little bit but it's it's so different for you you know it's kind of diametrically opposed really how Mm. did that go down with your listeners (laughs) well it was interesting because the feedback i was getting i was trying to aim it at more progressive christians i suppose and yet a lot of them were deconstructing as well so I wasn't sure what, what I was doing you know, in my own mind, I guess. And so as I became more clear, I mean, I remember I was, I, I'm a big fan of Dan Carlin, Hardcore History. He's like the grandfather of podcasts and everything. I'm a huge history nerd anyway, but I heard him say one time, he said, a podcast has to become what it's going to become. And you have to just work that out maybe over a period of years. Hmm. And I, that kind of took a lot of the anxiety out of it for me because I thought, yeah, that's what it's, that's what's happening here. Right. It's becoming what it's becoming. And I'm becoming a different person in, in the process, you know. So right. the audience that has found my podcast are people who are like me, mostly ex-cult members, ex-religious people who are seeking to rebuild their lives, which is what I try to offer, basically a resource for people who are, have walked away from religion or a cult. 
Yeah, that's. I guess that's a very similar audience to us, really, in many respects. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think, as you know, I was a I was a Jehovah's Witness for uh, well all my life up until thirty, really, um, and then I left. So that's still quite a long time ago. I'm quite old. Um, mm. So, um, <laughs> but I, as I reflect on it now, in all those years later, I kind of feel like I, I can have a certain perspective because you you you're going through it at the same time, which is mm-hmm. fascinating. Are those um, old podcasts still there? That you are they still they're available? still there. Yes, I've archived them on my website right. as well as they're on Podbean, which is I've got every single episode I've ever done all the way from back to number one, which was in right. I think 2016. So, you know, it's interesting to go back mm. and listen to those. And I can even hear myself now. Some of it's cringeworthy, but some <laughs> of it is like, you know, I could see where I was trying to work out my own sure. stuff as yeah. the podcast was growing and developing. I was very critical of the church. That's for sure. Because what I used to teach at a Bible college and I would go up to Leeds and Liverpool every week and teach up there. And even in that process, I was getting the students to question their own beliefs which then, of course, led me into difficulties with the administration of the of the Bible College. You know, <laughs> inevitably, I suppose. Yeah, sure. So, obviously, um, our listeners will recognise that you've got an American accent, but you're based in the UK. Um, so, did that did that have any part to play in it? Because obviously, um, the, the church you came from was a very fundamentalist evangelical type church. Which um, I mean, it does exist in this country, but it's perhaps not as uh, steeped in it. Do you think that had mm-hmm. any parts playing it? Oh yeah, definitely. When I came over here, I had just come off the back of being a pastor for about 12 right. years. I would say that church that I was a pastor, it wasn't really a fundamentalist church, but it was okay. certainly evangelical. It was affiliated with the Willow Creek, Bill Hybels model. So when I first started there, I was just the drummer in the worship band. I just got a gig playing drums. <laughs> uh, when I was at Bible college, I was just looking for a place to play drums. And I hooked up with some friends that went there and all the all that, you know, typical story. Uh, but it was a it was a pretty seeker oriented church, I guess we would say, you know, we're, we're trying to win the loss for Christ and everything. But what I was raised in was definitely a fundamentalist culture. I was I say I was raised in a cult. I was mm-hmm. raised in the Bill Gothard movement, which was called Institute and Basic Youth Conflicts. Now it's called Institute and Basic Life Principles. It's absolutely a cult. So that was my background coming out of a very fundamentalist background. Okay. What was, because um, I don't know a lot about um, that kind of uh, upbringing or particular brand of like evangelical um, mm-hmm. Christianity. Is Would you be able to talk a little bit about, I guess, its ideologies or beliefs or why, why um, retrospectively you can be like, that's culty? It is. Yeah, I, it's still going, mm-hmm. even though the founder of the movement, Bill, Bill Gothard, has been disgraced for numerous sexual Mm-hmm. Uh, abuse cases against multiple women. He, he's never had to, a- to answer for it. Unfortunately, he's gotten away with it, basically, which is a typical cult scenario, isn't it? You've got a cult mm-hmm. leader who abuses their followers mm-hmm. and never never has to answer for it. But basically, he came along in the late 60s, early 1970s, and was offering up a kind of a, a Bible-based approach to authority you know, in a, in the middle of the sort of cultural revolution and all the upheaval in America. So people like my parents, they were looking for some answers and he provided answers from the Bible. And his whole argumentation was that God is like a line of a chain of command and God is at the top and then Jesus. And then you have your church and you have the father and the mother and then children under that. And you have this line of succession and it's all about submitting to the authority that you're under. And so in the, that's why I would say that becomes the cult-like aspects of it, because if you disobey your authority above you, you're like unprotected. So his, his metaphor is it's like a series of umbrellas, big umbrellas getting smaller and smaller. And you're somewhere in that chain as a person, whether you're a child or your wife or a husband, you're still underneath some authority. And so you can see right away that that could lead to all sorts of abuses because you have to submit and submit and submit. And so as kids, we were raised in this very fundamentalist purity culture kind of context, all the while feeling like we had to submit to our parents who then submitted to the church, who submitted to God, you know, so it just went up the chain. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, I certainly recognize that. I mean, that's very similar really to, uh, oh, to the Jehovah's Witness mm-hmm. um, yeah. headship yeah. principles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So, what about the beliefs? Uh, I'm I'm guessing it's kind of um, uh, very fundamentalist Bible principles. You know, um, uh, young Earth creation, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And um, yeah, very literalist, very literalist yeah. interpretation of the Bible. That was yeah. the context I was raised in, coming out of the whole debates between the fundamentalists and the liberals in the around the turn of the century and up into about the 1950s. So our our tradition was we were part of that that reaction against liberal theology. So we saw ourselves as sort of the defenders of the Orthodox Christian faith. And part of that was the inerrancy. You know, the Bible is inspired. There's no mistakes in it. It, You have to read it and interpret it and apply it literally to our lives. So you could see again where that could lead to abuses, because if the authority of the church is telling you this is what the Bible says, when actually they're saying this is my interpretation (laughs) of the Bible Mm -hmm. in this particular tradition, you know, so I was raised in a tradition where they didn't believe in, like, for example, the gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecies and those kind of things. So they they were railing against charismatic churches. You know, so mm-hmm. I grew up in a tradition that was very what what's called a cessationist tradition. We believed yeah. all those things had stopped at the end of the first century. So you can yeah. see where that could lead to all sorts of theological disputes and debates. You know, so there's all sorts of factions and and splits within Christianity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, everything you've said so far, I, I could say exactly the same thing, actually, um, mm-hmm. about Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I, I guess uh, differences might be around things like the Trinity and um, the, mm-hmm. the end of the world and heaven and hell and those sorts of things. I guess, um, did, did you have a belief in, in the literal hell and, and going to heaven, things like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that was part of my uh, religious trauma syndrome that I'm now <laughs> struggling with as an adult, you know. Because as a kid, we were taught of what's called a premillennial view of end times. Eschatology is sort of the fancy word for end times theology, and that view is that at some point Christ is going to return. He's going to or he's going to rapture the the Christians out of the world, take yeah. them up into heaven. After that, there's going to be seven years of horrible tribulation, and then there's going to come a final judgment, and then there's going to be a one thousand year rule and reign of Christ on earth. And that was the view we were taught. So I was exposed to a a movie called A Thief in the Night back in the 1970s, early 80s, which taught that if you were left behind after the rapture, you were then stuck to face the seven years of tribulation on your own. And so as a kid of 10, 11 years old, I was terrified that the rapture was going to happen and then I'd be left to face the tribulation on my own. So I was afraid of going to hell. I was afraid of the rapture. I was afraid that you had this surveilling God who was watching everything you did. He could read your thoughts, you know, so you can see how that could lead to all sorts of traumas in a young child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've since found there's thousands of people out there who were exposed to those films like I was and the, the left behind series of books and movies yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Another generation later, they re- rebooted them and came out with the left behind series, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's mm. fascinating. So the, the, um, the thief in the night, was that, um, so I've heard about, I haven't seen it, but I, I've, um, I've heard about it. So is this a story of somebody that, that wakes up in the morning and they're mm-hmm. kind of on their own in the house and, uh, yep. trying to it's work about, out? Yeah. A woman who wait, you know, it's this whole, that's the mo- moment where the movie begins. She wakes up, yeah. the clock radio comes on and she hears all these stories about cars that have been abandoned all over the world and airplanes that have crashed and the world's in chaos. What's happening? What's happening? Yep. She realizes that the rapture has happened but she wasn't a Christian. So she got left behind. And from then on, that's where the story picks up and it goes back sort of in time where she's had numerous chances to, you know, become a Christian and she didn't, she didn't take their her opportunities, you know, to her, to now to her regret. Hmm. And then she has to navigate all of the, the worsening situation in the world. I think there's, there's at least three, maybe four movies. There's a whole series of movies oh, really? and it just goes down the, the line of, things get worse and worse and worse. And, mm. you know, she's stuck behind with all of her friends that are trying to escape the antichrist. And I mean, it's just <laughs> down this rabbit hole you go. <laughs> Sounds terrifying. Um, <laughs> so as a it young was. person, uh, you're, you're being, as a young person, you're being exposed to this. And mm. um, I guess at the same time, you're being um, groomed to become a certain type of person. Um yep you end up going into ministry. So is that, was that kind of predetermined for you? Is that how, how your life was mapped out for you? Well, not so much like being groomed for ministry, but I would say that 
I think, and I've said this before on other podcasts and shows and things that why I went into academics and the ministry myself, going to Bible college and seminary, I think now I see it as I was trying to alleviate in other people the some of the traumas that I had gone through as a kid. I, I had this idea that if I could study theology and I could study the Bible, if I could teach it to other people in a pastoral way that would help them, I would help them avoid some of those traumas and pitfalls as a kid. But now I see that you know I was only perpetuating the party line, you know, mm-hmm. especially as a pastor. I can look back at sermons I preach and I just cringe now because I was laying a lot of guilt and shame on people. Mm-hmm. And that's the message I thought that's what pastors were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So I was actually part of the toxic system, really. And just um, a question, because uh, I don't think it's something that we hear from a lot from our sort of uh, people when we interview them that are in like an England based uh, groups they don't talk about bible college um mm-hmm. what is like bible college for people that don't know about it um because it's something that i we don't hear about a lot when we interview other people from mm-hmm. england <laughs> well there's first of all there's not that many bible colleges in this country in the uk mm-hmm. here anyway it's not really a thing which is mm-hmm. kind of a side story this is why i ended up staying in this country as long right. as i did because the plan was originally i was going to come over here do my phd and then go back to the states or north america where in Canada and, and, and America, there's a Bible college almost on every street mm-hmm. corner. There's seminaries everywhere. We have the most seminaries and Bible colleges of anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's an easy chance to get a job as a professor. That's That was the place to do it. But the longer we stayed here, the less opportunities there were for me to teach because there just aren't that many Bible mm-hmm. colleges. But what it is, you can think of it as like, let's say, a four-year ministry training school or university Bible college, you would come out of it in most cases with an undergraduate degree mm-hmm. in something like, you know, biblical studies or communications or missions or church planting or uh, Hebrew or Greek studies, things mm-hmm. like that. You'd really intensively study the Bible and theology for those three or four years, and you'd be qualified to be some sort of a minister, a missionary, a pastor, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Because yeah, that's so not you, something I've heard about before. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. really interesting, actually. Um, so you you've had a a really intense period of study. Then you know your Bible inside out, don't you? At the end mm-hmm. of that, uh, and yet it's you know obviously it takes some time for you to to really start to have those serious doubts and thoughts about things. It seems seems like you're looking back on it. You're you're thinking, making sense of all that by thinking about it as a as a kind of journey as you're trying to maybe reform things you're thinking about how could I do that and then as you get um on uh in time you start to to make a decision that you can no longer be part of it how what were the issues what were the things that were bothering you about your faith that made you decide I I just you know I I can't do it yeah how how did you (laughs) do it well it was a long process Okay. There's kind of two things. One of my good friends, uh, David Hayward, he's the, called the Naked Pastor. He's out of Canada. And he, he said something years ago that I really kind of took on board. He says, deconstructing your faith is like the twin uh, tracks of a train track where they're parallel with each other. They don't touch each other. One of them is your relationship with the church. And the other track is your relationship with you know the Bible, theology, God, your belief system, hmm. and whichever you know, track you go down, inevitably it will impact the other track. Mm. So if you start, if you have problems with the church, let's say you've been hurt or abused or you're having issues with people in the church, eventually it'll start you to question your theological beliefs. If, on the other hand, you start to question your the- theology, your, the Bible, what you've been taught, that will inevitably bring you into conflict with the church. Mm. You can't help it. It's, it's going to impact on the other track. Mm. And that's basically what happened to me because as a pastor, I got burned out and burned in ministry. After 12 years, I got absolutely scorched. We, we had to close our church down because it was heading to a ugly church split. So when we came over to the UK, I was done with church and I was done with Christians. I considered myself a Christian. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to reform the church from with, without or within, I should say, as a teacher, right. which is why I was pursuing a PhD. And then I ended up going to this Bible college to teach because I thought if I can shape men and women with my stories of being in the trenches for so long, then I'll help them to avoid some of the pitfalls that I encountered as a pastor. But then I was reading, you know, Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, D- 
Donald Miller, other books like that, that then led me to start questioning my belief system, which then led me to conflict with the church because we were at a church in Chester where we lived in the UK. And I started questioning some of the teachings there. And that led me into conflict with the leadership of the church. You know, so it's one of those illustrations of uh, how it how it can happen where your belief systems inevitably lead you into conflict with the leadership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's difficult. I mean, you you, you start off thinking, well, maybe I, I need some help, so I, I need to talk mm-hmm. to somebody to help me with with my th- with my thinking, with my faith, and then, of course, as you start to try and defend your position or explain your problem, explain why mm-hmm. you're struggling, that then becomes almost like your argument, doesn't it? And and you then position yourself in this place that you realize actually, actually, you do feel quite strongly about this. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I do recognize that. Well, and one thing I've recently learned, I've, I've known this for a while, this whole issue of something that I've, I've done a lot of cult studies, I've done a lot of episodes on cults and talked yeah. to cult ex-cultists and cult experts. And one of the things I learned was that there's this principle called doubling something that Dr. Robert J. Lifton talks about. And he says, basically, when you join a religion, it's almost like you create an alternative self. There's your authentic self, the real you. And then there's this religious self, this kind of persona that you create, a mask that you wear to fit into the group, to suppress your cognitive dissonance and all the rest of it. And I realized that every time that I had a disagreement, like you were just saying, a a question or a doubt, that's actually your authentic self trying to break out, if you will, and you can suppress that for only so long. We can suppress your cognitive dissonance, but for many people, it just becomes to a point where you just can't do it anymore and uh, the whole system collapses. Then it's a case of rebuilding and rediscovering who your actual authentic self is and was. That's the journey I'm on. I feel like I've got to go back and rebuild my actual authentic self. So every doubt that I had was actually my real self trying to break through. True, yeah. It's a really interesting subject. It's something that I constantly ask my guests and and other um, Mm -hmm. cult experts that I talk to. I mean, I've got a background in psychology um, as well. And um, the idea of of self is quite a a complicated, contested idea in in its own right, actually. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with born-ins, I think it's, it's particularly difficult to think about um rediscovering an authentic self because actually you are uh, to some degree a product of your environment and and your you know obviously there's elements of genetic makeup in there as well but it's it's um it's difficult to unpick all of that so i feel like mm. that's something that that um from a psychology perspective we we need to get a better handle on when when we're thinking about how to talk to um mm. born in uh you know members if you like I agree. Yeah. I was going to say that's, I know you're going to say something, Celine, but for, there is a difference, isn't there, between like what I call first and second generation. Mm. Those of us who were born into the religion, we never had an authentic that's self right. in a sense because all we ever had was the religious self. Exactly. Whereas those yeah. who came into it later in life and became a Christian or Jehovah's Witness or Mormon or wherever the faith was, they had an authentic self before they joined. That's right. So yeah. we're on a slightly but, different journey. I think so. And I think a lot of the literature, a lot of the books, certainly that, you know, we read about cults and written by uh, cult experts are, are written by people who often have, have gone into a group, either mm-hmm. a political group or religious group, and then they've come out. So they have a reference point that is that experience. But I think, you know, the more people like, I guess you and I, who, who have, um being born into that and the more we talk about it i think there's a there's definitely something there to uh to keep uh you know to look into a bit more closely and think about how can we mm-hmm. how can we create a model that that works for us and i think we're getting there and um it's an area that i'm fascinated fascinated mm-hmm. by really uh, celine mm-hmm. you're going to say something oh i was just saying i think that's why um we really appreciated talking to yanya and her mm. more recent book because obviously she's mm. Um, using lots of or speaking to lots of different people and using their examples um as as born-ins isn't she there um mm. and yeah. um yeah sort of talking about that process of of not rediscovering but discovering i guess yourself and mm. um mm-hmm. discovering bit which bits of you were always coming through even if you were mm. trying to hide them anyway or or um I think Jilly's yeah. saying like the things that people would tell you not to do, but you couldn't almost help doing like people like John Elson that we've interviewed that like to draw 
and found mm. ways to draw and get away with it. You know what I mean? Or find mm-hmm. writing plays as part of the religion, but even though you, you know, you're meant to be doing other things, finding ways to do that stuff. And you're like, okay, that's probably me coming out mm. there. Mm-hmm. And I've since discovered that I had a guest that told me that every time you suppress that authentic self, she calls it a site of injury. You're actually doing injury to that authentic self by suppressing mm. and suppressing and suppressing. You can't do that. Well, you can do it. A lot of people do, and they just stay within the religion and double down. Mm. But you think, my God, I mean, all those sites of injury, it's doing some traumatic damage to our psyche or authentic self. And that's all got to be rebuilt and, you know, healed and and processed. And that's why we need so many of us need therapy and counseling Mm. after after we get out of religion. Mm. absolutely yeah absolutely it takes a long time as well doesn't it i think you know that's Mm. that's the other thing i've been left um yeah over 20 years now um and it's still you know it still affects uh my thinking and and uh yeah it's definitely i don't think it ever goes away but it does get easier i I do believe Mm. um okay that that's that's all really really interesting um i want to make sure we get time to to talk about one of your the the areas that you talk quite a lot you talk a lot about on your podcast which is this um this concept of dominion theology which i I think a lot of our listeners won't be aware of this um dominion theology is something that perhaps isn't quite so well known particularly in the uk um could you tell us a little bit about that and there's this seven mountains version of it as well Mm -hmm. Uh, i know you're looking into that and you've done some work on that could you give us a bit of an overview of that well i would just say before we get into that, I think yeah. people have been affected by it, even though if they don't necessarily know what it means. Yes. Not only in, in the United States, which is probably the biggest area that you're seeing it, but worldwide. You know, there are groups that if you've seen that Netflix documentary called The Family, have, that's yeah. what led me into this research in the first place several well, years ago, because he, I just thought it was an interesting show about a, a, a Christian group, which yeah. it was. But then he talked about they believe in this dominion theology. And I thought, what is that? I've never heard of dominion theology. I need to go research this, you know. So, <laughs> And it turns out that the family or the Fellowship Foundation, they have connections worldwide. They're not just an American thing. They are worldwide. They're doing stuff in Ukraine. They're doing stuff in Africa. They're doing stuff in Romania. I'm sure they've got connections over here in Britain. You know, so we we are being affected, even if we don't know all of what's going on uh, with some of these dominionist groups. But basically, I would say the the core premise of dominion theology it comes from the verse in Genesis one twenty six through twenty eight. If you read the narrative of the, it's all about the story of God creating Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and all that. And yeah. at some point, he's giving them this sort of you know walking orders or whatever, and he says. The, in the in the narrative anyway, God says to them, you know, be fruitful and multiply, be stewards over the earth, and take dominion over the earth. Now, most Christians have historically read that verse to mean some sort of environmental view mm. that we need yeah. to be as Christians, good responsible stewards, stewards. of the environment, yeah. mm. and take care of the earth and, and make sure we don't destroy, you know, species yeah. and everything else. But there was a guy named R.J. Rushduni. <clears throat> who was the father of a movement called Christian Reconstructionism. And about, about the 1940s and 50s, he was, an, he was Armenian, but he was born in, in the States. And he started formulating this belief, what's called dominion theology. And from what I can tell, Rush Dooney was really the first person to articulate what has become known as dominion theology. And he read that verse and he said, no, it's, it's much more of a political Thing. That's what God meant. The, the dominion mandate means for God says to Christians, you need to take over the world in a political sense. And when you do that, when you finally set up some sort of a kingdom on earth, then Christ will return. And only then, you know, so that becomes a completely different reading of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where it's a political thing. And then the question becomes, how do you actually do that? And from that, there are several different iterations or streams that have come out of that basic movement, of which Seven Mountains Mandate is just one. There's a couple of different ones from, from Rush Dooney, really. But that's yeah. where it all comes from. Right. So there's, um, that's really interesting. So I, I think I'll, I'll get you to talk about the next bit first before I make a comment. Because um, So from this comes this Seven Mountains um, 
philosophy, which basically is the is the how you're going to do it. Um, so, so mm-hmm. what are these seven mountains then, and how does it um, how does it how do they think that this is going to create this kingdom of God on earth? Yeah, the 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 issue is going back to my point about okay, so you've got Rush Dooney, and then it's a question of how how Christians are going to take dominion. And one of the people that's written a lot on it, the guy I've had on the show a few times is Frederick Clarkson. Mm-hmm. And he's written a lot on this and he, he breaks it down into two basic streams, what he calls hard and soft dominionism. So hard dominionism would be the Christian reconstructionist types where for Rush Dooney, his way of achieving dominion was to enact an Old Testament law for all of society. So he would argue that the best society is one in which the Old Testament law is the law of the land for everybody. Whether you're a Christian or Muslim or whatever you are, you are right. under the Old Testament law. So that would be like the whole Israel. of the law, all of, yeah, all of the all rules, of like wearing cotton and yep. um, shellfish and all, all that sort yep. of stuff. Yeah, And all the right. resulting punishments that go with it. So yep. the death penalty for, for homosexuals, death penalty for people who are not virgins on their wedding day. You just go down the line and you're going to be dragged out and stoned just like they did in Old Testament Israel or they were commanded to do. That's a very hard line to take. And that's why it's the Christian, re, the real hard Christian reconstructionism isn't really adopted because it's too controversial. Mm-hmm. However, what they like about it is the dominion piece where they say, yeah, God has mandated Christians to take dominion. So the softer dominion would be that more seven mountains mandate where they, their argument is, well, we need to take over, but we're going to do it in, in less of a confrontational way. It's more about spiritual warfare. Their belief is that there are seven sort of cultural mountains or mountains of influence over every society. And atop each of those mountains, there's some sort of a demonic spirit. And so what we need to do as Christians is wage spiritual warfare and go up those mountains and you know unseat the demon on top of the mountain and put a Christian in charge. And once we can do all seven, then we will rule and reign over society. You know, not necessarily to institute Old Testament law, but we'll just have a godly Christian society. But you would assume that they they would want to uh, apply that sort of law, then, wouldn't you? So I guess uh, the temptation would be surely too much if they if if you end up with dominion over all these different facets of life, they're going to want to apply Bible rules to uh, our way of life aren't they and, and we can see that in some of the uh, sure the, the the things they're trying to do i guess exactly well for example we've talked about this recently the texas abortion law mm. there's a lot of this is tied up with christian nationalism so in america for example there's a belief that america was founded expressly as a christian nation and what we've lost our way we've we've you know slid off the path excuse me and basically, we need to get back to becoming a Christian nation again. So they're saying, well, the, the best way to do that is to Christianize America. We need to get Christians in charge of all these seven mountains. And then God will start blessing America again. And one of the big corporates, well, two of the big corporate sins are homosexuality and abortion. That's why you see so much about the so-called homosexual or gay agenda. And these, these recent laws that have been passed in Texas and Miss, Mississippi or Missouri they're saying we we just need to outlaw abortions. Period. Full stop. We're just going to stop women from having abortions mm. because it's such a an egregious sin against God. He's no longer blessing America because we have allowed abortions and same sex marriages. You know. So I'm just thinking we didn't talk about the seven mountains, but yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are the seven mountains? Yeah. There's a lot of different uh, websites that talk about this. I'm looking at this website called the Generals International, which is a woman named Cindy Jacobs. She's one of the big sort of prophets in this movement. And the seven mountains, she talks about it on her website, are religion, family, education, government, media, arts and entertainment, and then business. And so what they're trying to do is, in this spiritual warfare sense, they want to be on top of every one of those seven mountains and have Christians in charge, and then we'll just be a Christian society again, as it were, uh, which we never were. That's the thing. It's a whole myth. Christian, <laughs> there is no such thing as a Christian America. It's a complete fabrication, but it's one that works for them. So, yeah, I, I've downloaded a couple of things um, from some of these websites. There's a, a very um, useful PDF from 
uh, a group called uh, is that the, the Philadelphia Ta- Tabernacle of David. So mm-hmm. there's quite a lengthy um, PDF there, and then there's another one which is uh, the World Vision Crusade Outreach Ministries. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, these. Uh, so when when we start talking about this, you can't help but feel it sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Um, but the fact is, is it's not hidden really is it it's it's pretty much out there we can they're telling us what they're doing these groups yes Uh, it's on their website and they're creating pdfs about it so it's not a secret um and i guess that they the philosophy is that and again jehovah's witnesses would agree with this bit is that they think that satan is the ruler of the world and so all these individual elements of culture uh, that you mentioned family and politics and business mm-hmm. and education and so on. These are all in, in under the control of the devil of Satan, because he's basically pulling the strings. And again, that's exactly how I yeah. was raised to, to see it. Same Unlike way. Jehovah's witnesses where we were told, basically we have to stay neutral and we need to stand still and let Jehovah um, make those changes. That it's him that's going to do it when Jesus comes and he's the one that's going to make all these things happen. Therefore we stay neutral. What, what this group, what this movement is saying is no, actually the Bible tells us we've got to make this happen ourselves. So we've got to get involved in all these different strands of society in order to have control over them. How successful are they then? I suppose is the question. Um, So you talked a little bit about the political side of it. I know, Mm -hmm you've talked a lot about Trump and uh, and the Republican party. Yes. How much of that is going on? How much of what is going on there is, is down to this stuff. Would you say? It is. It's the, I would say it's, it's the main driver. One of them, if not one of the main drivers, if not the main driver, why else would an evangelical want to get involved in politics mm-hmm. anyway, for any reason it goes back to it's, and it's not just a thing that's happened in the last, you know, two or three years when Trump was president this goes back, you can trace it to people like Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, um, you know, uh, what is it, Tim LaHaye, the Council for National Policy, and all these other Christian right groups that were founded in the late 1970s and early 1980s with an express view to get Christians mobilized into the political process. You know, to, to they would turn out voter guides and give them to Christians at churches and say, you need to vote for the right candidates. We need to get the right men and women elected to office specifically to pass laws that benefit Christians, to Christianize America. So that's why an evangelical would even be interested in politics in the first place was a guy like Jerry Falwell and people like him back in the 70s were telling them, look, America's lost its way and you as a Christian need to get involved and run for office and become a leader, become a politician, or at least vote for the right person. Uh, to get them elected to the right office so we can make a difference in this world. That was what the whole motivation was, you know, 40 years ago and more. So one of the other things that you, you talk about is um, this uh, kind of strategic move between the charismatic wing of the church and the evangelical or fundamentalist um, wing, if you like, because these two, have become uh, quite powerful within this movement, and and that helps them, doesn't it? But mm-hmm. that wasn't always the case. So how did how did that happen? That's a fascinating storyline because I was going to say on our point earlier about the seven mountains. Generally speaking, that as you say is the more charismatic side of this right. movement. They're the ones who have all these self-styled, you know, I say prophets and apostles in air quotes. People like Cindy Jacobs, Lance Wallnow, uh, Paula Jones, Paula White Kane, I should say, uh, you know, all these people that you saw around Donald Trump mm. during his four years as president, you know, praying for him and all that in the White House, leading Bible studies in the White House, leading prayer, you know, prayer movements in, in, in you know, in Congress and the White House and teaching Bible studies. I mean, there's a guy named Dr. Lance Wallnow. He's a big, you know, Seven Mountains guy. He was teaching classes in Congress. You know, it's on unbelievable, isn't it? Congress people, senators, congresswomen, mm. congressmen, on what this all means, and mm. what you're finding is that that where those two came together, as you say, because they they realize, okay, we're going to put aside our theological differences, 
and we're going to we're going to focus on sort of Christianizing America and the world. Mm-hmm. We need to work together. And what we're finding now that's fascinating is you hear the language cropping up in places that you normally wouldn't see it. So, like, for example, let's say focus on the family, Dr. Uh, Jim James Dobson. They are a very conservative, if not fundamental. They're not a charismatic movement at all. And yet people from that organization will say, we need to take the seven mountains of culture. Mm. You know, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought that was a charismatic thing. Why are you using that language? Because it's become universal. It's become normalized in that sort of general movement. They're just agreeing, yeah, that's what we need to be about. And that's what we need to be doing. Yeah, that's fascinating. So um, you think about the, uh, the, you've mentioned the politics there. We'll probably come back to that if we have time, because um, mm-hmm. I think it's really, really important. And it's one of the ob- most obvious areas. Um, the other one or another one that I think is going to be interesting to both of us really is is the education. Mm-hmm. So how is that? Um, how, what's the tactic for becoming dominant in terms of, of children's education? It's a long-term strategy, and for that, you really have to go back to our Rush Dooney again, because R.J. Rush Dooney is a, such a pivotal figure, not only for developing that Dominion Theology piece, he wrote a massive volume, something like 1,200 pages, called The Institute of Biblical Law in about 1973, 1972, and he spelled out, he goes through the Ten Commandments, and he spells all this out, how what his vision for Christian Reconstruction, a society based on Old Testament law, would look like. Now, Rush Dooney, for him, he said, look, we it's all about education. We need to, you know, in, he wouldn't say indoctrinate, but we need to inculcate generations of children. And the best way to do that, to eventually take over society, is through generations and generations of kids either going to a Christian school, a day school, or even better, to be homeschooled in a Christian environment. So that's why he spent so many years in the 70s and 80s. He went all over the, the country in America arguing in court cases for the rights of parents to homeschool their kids, which, was a, which wasn't a thing. It was illegal mm-hmm. back then. They, they were not allowed to do it. If a kid wasn't in a public school, that was illegal. They, they weren't allowed to homeschool. But he helped win the rights of parents all over the country to homeschool their kids. And he was pivotal in setting up a lot of Christian day schools as well. So he's a pioneer in that field going back to the 70s and 80s. And so people would point to him and say, yeah, if it wasn't for Rush Dooney, we wouldn't have the Christian homeschooling movement like you have. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the curriculum that you that you can get as a Christian homeschool parent is shot through with mm-hmm. Christian reconstruction of dominion theology. It's cloaked and it's veiled, but their vision is to produce generation after generation after generation. Eventually, there'll be so many of them that they will just be the the dominant force in society. They're going to get involved in politics and education and the legal field, the business field. We're just going to flood the market, saturate the market. And that was his vision. And we still see that today. That's almost the more terrifying one. Like the politics sounds like immediately, obviously scary. Do you know what I mean? When there's laws being passed, Mm -hmm. but the education one kind of puts the shivers up my spine more Mm -hmm. because it's like, it's the it's the quiet creeping in of of these dangerous ideologies rather than the obvious things that mm-hmm. um, and I guess like you know to use media example it, you know in terms of like what's cr- scary when you're reading stuff like Handmaid's Tale is when they're describing you know we didn't notice this happening or that happening mm-hmm. it just was happening and then all of a sudden it was too far and it, but they don't start with you know. You don't start in in the end place, do you? It yeah, starts with stuff blatant. like, yeah, mm. stuff like the right to homeschool your kids. You can't really argue that people shouldn't be allowed to if they want to, but then all of a sudden, yeah, you, you've got mm-hmm. a bigger plan. <laughs> it's true. Well, there's two two examples recently. One thing is the uh, there's sort of an att- assault on public schools. I read an article the other day where in the state of Maine, you know, they're making a reasonable, rational argument. It's actually going to the Supreme Court. In rural areas in the state of Maine, in the United States, they're saying, okay, look, there's all these school kids of school school children age who, for for them, it's too far to go to a, to a public school. But we'll open up a Christian school in our little rural area. And what they want is they want state taxpayer money to fund those Christian schools. 
And on one level, you could say, well, it's, it's reasonable. You know, they're giving these these rural kids a local place where they can go get an education rather than traveling two hours to the closest school. But of course, what they're indoctrinating them is in this, you know, fundamentalist kind of worldview. And then the other thing, I wrote an article recently in the uh, Public Eye Journal talking about during the COVID lockdown, the first, first and second one, but the first one primarily, a lot of parents had no choice but to homeschool their kids just to keep them on an academic track. And what they found was, well, there's all this pre-made curriculum already, yeah. you know, it's already been done. All these resources. Oh, yeah. And so there, you can purchase a whole course on any subject you want. But what they didn't realize was that a lot of it was shot through with this dominionist sort of theology. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're buying this curriculum from these Christian websites and it's all suffused with this sort of theology. So that caught a lot of people by surprise that <laughs> I'm not even a Christian. I just bought this course on geography. All of a sudden, I'm teaching dominion theology to my kids. You know, where's this coming from? Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, it's very strategic. Um, so obviously, there's the political side of things. And, and um, Trump seems such an odd bedfellow for... Uh, a highly religious group. <laughs> yeah. um, can you can you explain to us how you know these hyper religious people the, from these purity cultures um, see Trump? How, how do they see him as the person they want in power? He was their sort of messiah figure, I think, in a way, because it's not the first time they've tried to make a president into that. I mean, if you go back to Ronald Reagan. You know, there's this long story where. Uh, you know, they turned against Jimmy Carter. That was the ironic thing. Jimmy Carter was an actual evangelical Christian. He really was. He said he was a Christian and they thought we're going to have a Christian president, but he di- he disappointed them because he was so liberal, you know, politically. So then they turned on Carter and they, they helped. That's when the Christian right really came into its own, was in the run up to the Ronald Reagan era. They realized, hey, we've got a lot of power. If we could just mobilize these millions of Christians to vote for our candidate, we could really get some stuff done. So they saw Reagan, they saw George W. Bush, you know, in, in those kind of terms as well. If we could elect the right president, in air quotes, he he will appoint judges, he will pass laws that will favor Christians. You know, and so in Trump, that was part of that, I think, the larger storyline. But, but with Trump, you know, he he was promising to do anything and everything for, for evangelicals. But we, we've never seen the rabid support like we did with Trump. I mean, mm. it's shocking how they just overlooked all of the backstory, the lies, the, mm. the shady business dealings and all the rest of it. Because And he did deliver on a lot of the promises. He appointed mm. hundreds of judges. He appointed three Supreme Court judges, which is exactly why we're seeing these laws coming out about abortion right now because they're saying we've got a majority on the supreme court because trump appointed those three we can win we can overturn roe versus way that is exactly why they've done it now it's no accident this is a long game yeah 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 Yeah. and it's um so is it the so the people that we see at the rallies um who are fanatical about trump are they the are they different people to the ones who have carefully strategically decided to support trump um because it's almost like that you know the, the more strategic thinkers are thinking about them they know they're making a deal with the devil sure. they know what he's like but he is going to deliver the things they want i can understand that but then you've got this other group of people who really do seem to love him you know they really do seem to think he is mm-hmm. So I've heard that some of these groups think that they liken him to Cyrus the Great yeah. as the the uh, Persian king that was going to free them from from Babylon. So they're, they're using all these biblical symbols and antitypes and so on. Um, but that doesn't seem like the people that are shouting for him at the, the, the rallies. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the question is in all that, but does that make sense? Is yeah. that what we're seeing? We're seeing just different constituencies or somehow has it all got merged together? Yeah. I mean, my argument was during when Trump was president, I came to the realization that basically he was running what I consider a political cult of personality. So mm-hmm. I see it from the cult psychology point of view. He's certainly not the first political leader to have a cult of personality behind him. And then you start mixing in things like QAnon, the rabid um, charismatic side, the books that came out, the Trump prophecies, all these things came out 
during uh, in the run up to his election and then after he became president. So it w- I think it went to a completely different level. As you say, it wasn't just about a purely transactional thing, although it was that you know, we're going to support him. We're going to overlook all this stuff because he can get this done for us, which he did. But there's this core group that I think are absolutely in a cult. You know, it's the cult psychology going to the rallies. I've written articles. I mean, Stephen Hassan wrote a book, The Cult of Trump. Right. Yeah, we and, reviewed uh, it on this show, argument. actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we reviewed it. And, and I've, I've always been a bit cautious of um, expanding the, the term cult because I think mm-hmm. I worry that it, it gets uh, diluted if it, you know, everything um, ends up being a cult and then nothing really is meant by it. But yeah, I, I think there is a strong argument. The more I, the more I see and the more I, I hear, that the, the harder yeah. it is to deny, isn't it? It really is. I mean, he fits all the markers of a cult leader. Mm-hmm. He's charismatic. He's, you know, uh, amoral. <laughs> you know, he's in it for the money. Uh, he tells you what you want to hear. And it's, he's built this following of absolutely rabid. I mean, just they're, they're I heard someone say the other day that it's like these cultists that are in tr- the Trump world, they're living in a completely alternative reality. Mm-hmm. I saw yeah. a thing just yesterday. I posted an article in our close uh, Facebook group where Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, um, mm-hmm. Frank Media of this organization called POTUS Shield, Mike Flynn, who's another big one right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. He's pushing QAnon and everything else. Someone had put this giant whiteboard together with Trump's face in the middle with all these millions of arrows. Everything mm-hmm. flows to Trump all the way back to Jesus and John F. Kennedy Jr. and QAnon's all in there. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, my God, this is on a whole new level. <laughs> But people like those guys are pushing it. And there's another guy called Clay Clark, who's another one. He puts on these massive rallies every year. And there's all these speakers, and they're whipping people up into an absolute frenzy. Of course, they believe that Trump won the election. They're yes. still you know, pushing the big lie. And part of that relates to some of these prophecies. Because if you go back to, again, in the run-up to the 2020 election, there were all these so-called prophets in that that you know dominionist stream right. who right. predicted that Trump was going to win by a landslide he was yeah. going to beat Biden then when he didn't they had to somehow say well it wasn't a false prophecy so the answer is he actually did win we just it hasn't been revealed yet so there was a yeah. bunch of talk around that time you know and so that's that storyline is still going on mm-hmm. that he is actually the rightful president it's all going to be revealed soon mm-hmm. just wait and see and that's where the big lie comes in. That sounds very similar to the um, end of the world prophecies, where it's mm. like, yeah, um, when they're like, how do these cults carry on when they predict the end of the world, but then the end doesn't come? And it's exactly. like, because you say, oh, well, it did happen, just not in the way you think. Mm. Yeah. Like, um, God didn't come physically. He was here spiritually. You just didn't see yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Well, we've been spared. We've been given another six months or, yeah. and I, I did a whole episode because there's the book, when prophecy fails. I don't know if yeah. you've read that book. Yeah. Best we did Stinger. an episode on that as well. <laughs> yeah. But that's yeah. what happens. It's so tip. Yeah. They go through, like you say, the history of it group after the Jehovah's witnesses are one of mm. the most prime examples. How many times have they predicted Armageddon and with a specific Absolutely. date mm. and it didn't happen. And yet why didn't they renounce you know, Charles Taze Russell and some of the other people as false prophets. No, they've doubled down and they've given some explanation for it. Yeah, there's there's a few, you know, sort of typical tactics. And yeah, as Celine said, one is the, um, you know, it's definitely going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Oh, it didn't happen. Or maybe it did happen, but it was invisible. Yeah. You know, so we get from the presence <laughs> to the perusia and all that sort of stuff. And it, yeah, yeah. but these are, these are tricks that are, are used over and over and over again. And, yeah. um, you know, I think going work. back to they work because people actually, you know, the, the, the cognitive dissonance piece that you talk about, there, um, you know, there's two ways of dealing with that. One is the easy way. One is the hard way. The, the easy way is to find a, a method by which you can fit this new reality into the one you already had. And that, of course, is what many people do. You know, it's easier to do that than accept that actually the whole of this this whole framework I had is is now in doubt. So unfortunately, it's it's, it's easier mm-hmm. to find an excuse for it. Yeah. Um, there's lots of um, so some of these other um, pillars or these other uh, facets of of the seven mountains or other mountains, mm-hmm. if you like. Um, so what about the? Um, so we talked about the education and the 
uh, the political side of things. I think families uh, probably quite obvious again that that that's there's a lot of messages about the nuclear family and um, mm-hmm. and all of that sort of stuff what about business how does how do how do they get into business what's their tactics for that well if you think about it is it relates to finance a lot of it if you can if you have a christian who's becomes a wealthy business person mm-hmm. that person could be hugely influential in yeah. funding things for example and starting new initiatives so someone like the DeBoss family, for example, or you know someone who's a, like Mike, Mike Lindell, he's a classic example. Here's a, a uber wealthy businessman. Look at the influence that Mike Lindell is having because of his success, which clearly God has given it to him, the MyPillow success. He was a former crackhead who's now a multi-multi-millionaire. You know, so God is using Mike Lindell in a mighty way because he has so much money to spend on this stuff. You know, he could put conferences on, he can start his own media sites, he can start his own websites, he can travel all over the country, put huge conferences on. You and I don't have the resources to do what Mike Lindell's doing right now. And they would say that's because he's on top of that business mountain. Look what God can do using his money and his his resources to reach the world for Christ and whatever it is he's doing. So I guess that's that's what's underneath this um prosperity gospel idea so if you Mm -hmm. if you tell people that um you know being prosperous is is really is what you is a gift from god it's it's proof that you're doing god's works and god's will then you know when you do become rich they they're 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 betting that a lot of those people will become wealthy and and then obviously want to perpetuate that and to Mm -hmm. to give back i suppose yeah i can remember being recruited into amway in the states, several times. Yeah. It's not so much a thing in this country, is it? But no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's. I think we must have a few Amway people here in the UK. But yeah. you know, that was their storyline. It was all cloaked in this Christian religious veneer. And I remember I was at an ATM one time in in the Seattle area, and a, a guy just randomly approached me and started in with this line about, you know, what was I doing and where did I work and befriending me. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting recruited into Amway. Mm-hmm. And when he found out I was a Christian. He said, oh, well, that's that's absolutely perfect because you get involved in, in this Amway pro- procedure, this business, you'll become wealthy. And then look at what you can do for God with mm-hmm. this money that God's given you because of this business opportunity that I'm that's come your way. You know, so even then it was cloaked in this this sense of, you know, you can use mm-hmm. God can use your resources when he blesses you financially. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. So, um, obviously, part of your uh, your podcast um, covers a lot of areas. Um, so, mm-hmm. I thoroughly recommend it. Obviously, we'll put some uh, stuff in the show notes for people to to find it. I'm sure um, many of our listeners will be aware of you. The the Venn diagram, as we often say, is uh, <laughs> I'm sure it, it um, intersects. But um, yeah, yeah, we'll certainly um, point people in your direction. But I guess one of the things that you do talk about is this subject quite a lot and mm-hmm. uh, i i guess that's to increase awareness of 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 it it is and it's i think my approach to podcasting is uh, because i'm a teacher that's the way my i'm wired so i like to research things for my own interest so i i just start researching it mm-hmm. and then i can't help but share it with my audience you know so i'll uh, that's why i seek out experts who have written books and articles on the subject mm-hmm. because i think okay if we're going to talk to anybody about this, we need to find people who know the subject thoroughly because I want to give the listeners the best possible sort of, it is academic, but it's also my own personal journey as well. So that's why I got into cult psychology a few years ago, because I started realizing that a lot, even though I, I was raised in evangelical Christianity, so much of my experiences were cult-like. Mm-hmm. And yes. so that led me down a whole different road of researching cults and, and getting into the cult psychology, you know, so that's just kind of the way I approach podcasting in general, I think. Yeah, well, it's certainly worth, um, worth a listen. If you, if uh, as listeners, you've not listened to, uh, to Clint's podcast then do yourself a favor and, um, yeah, start. And there's, there's plenty there because you've been going a while. So, um, there's, there's plenty there to, to, a lot of uh, content to go, to, to go through. Yeah. There's always um, so someone we, to talk to. That's the thing I like <laughs> about I mean, people like you, you know, it's like, you just never know 
yeah. who you're going to meet, and, and it's all a network. We we end up talking to the same group of people, really, don't we? In the end, yeah, that's true. And and it, but it's I don't know about you, Clint, but it's one of the most rewarding things I've I've ever done. I absolutely yeah, I love think it. So. Um, and it's it's help. I think it helps us as well as as in, sure. in our journeys. Um, to to sort of the more we talk to people, the more you realize that you have so much common ground really mm-hmm. um is there anything celine that you you'd like to ask before we um uh no i don't think i've met you've missed anything i was just here to interject <laughs> periodically just being like oh yes yeah. I, I, here's a little yeah. thing <laughs> yeah oh, I, I'd, I'd love to talk to you again i mean there's so many um the, the the similarities between jehovah's witnesses and the um the things you've been talking about i think are fascinating as well as the differences it feels to me like um the same sensibility um jehovah's witnesses have exactly the same sensibility there the way they look at scripture and use those bible verses as a a way to apply to modern day things and understand what's going on in the world you know so taking daniel's prophecy at nebuchadnezzar and um, ezekiel's uh, prophecies and isaiah's prophecies these all have these major fulfillments around this time and this means this and this means that but the conclusion is slightly different so it means that for Mm -hmm. jehovah's witnesses it's all kind of in the future and it's all it's all meant to be faith strengthening but not to create an active movement so it's very passive whereas Mm -hmm. for the group that you're describing it's just all very very um, proactive and they're they're the ones that are making it happen but other than that the sensibilities are so similar it's fascinating Mm -hmm. really but the strange thing though for jehovah's witnesses there's this huge push to proselytize all over the world so what's that about it's not necessarily maybe a dominionist thing but obviously they are constantly seeking to add to their numbers worldwide because all over the uk i've been approached i used to teach in Mm -hmm. liverpool and I'd walk up out of Liverpool Central Station on the train, and here was a group of Jehovah's Witnesses every week, mm. you know, handing out the Watchtower magazine yeah. and, and all their periodicals, you know. And I'm thinking, okay, this is clearly not just an American thing; it's no. clearly a worldwide movement, isn't it? It is. Um, uh, for Jehovah's Witnesses, that is their their you know main purpose. That's what they're there for. So the they they take the scripture, you know, uh, make disciples of people of all nations, and that mm. so that is their uh, mission mandate, not, yeah yeah that's their mandate exactly um so that's that's what they're trying to do i mean you know from a from a the um theological point of view certainly i mean there may be some practical elements to that if you think quite cynically about the organization you know they, they want more people because more people eventually bring more funds into the organization so sure. i think there is that element but from a theological point of view they see their mission is is to preach because armageddon is coming so for jehovah's witnesses mm-hmm. armageddon is 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 nigh you know the end of the world is is about to happen um jesus has already taken power so he's already uh, ruling in the heavens but he's mm. waiting to um come and basically destroy all the all the well non jehovah's witnesses essentially so it's jehovah's witnesses job to try and tr- um, change as many people's minds as possible mm-hmm. to save them before the end comes so that's their yeah. job while there's still time while there's still time yeah so that's really what they're doing um but yeah i mean i i you know you, you talked about hard and soft dominionism and i i feel like jehovah's witnesses are the softest of the soft really mm-hmm. in the respect that they they are absolutely dominionist they want god's kingdom to rule the earth sure but they just think that god's going to do that himself they, that he doesn't need anybody to do that for him it's going to mm-hmm. be a a standstill and and there's a scripture somewhere in uh, chronicles i think so that that's that's the model that they take mm-hmm. but um but yeah uh, absolutely fascinating stuff i was going to say what we could do i don't know if you're interested what about you come on my show we'll talk about your jehovah's witness background and break down to. the cult psychology i think that would be absolutely fascinating so maybe i could return the favor and have you two on on mind shift want to do that yeah that would be absolutely that. fantastic we'll, we'll have to, to book that. it in yeah mm-hmm. definitely yeah all right we'll, we'll set it up 
that's definitely going to happen. Right, brilliant. Well, <laughs> thank you so much um, for spending your time with us this evening. I mean, I've <laughs> I've enjoyed it as much as I hoped I would. It's been brilliant, um, yeah, and I'm really sure there's some it. things there that our, our listeners will just not have heard before. <laughs> um, so I'm really excited um, to to get them to to listen to this um, this episode. Mm. So interesting. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you too. It was great great conversation. We'll definitely return the favor. We'll book we'll book a mindship podcast. Talk about Jehovah's Witnesses. Fantastic. Yeah. Look forward to that. Thank you very much. You are more than welcome. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. 